Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello, hello. This is Michael, and it is uh, Tuesday, July 14th, and I have to make sure on the days. I keep losing my days lately because it's so busy and the pandemic. But our uh, Robin Schooling will not be joining me today because she is off doing work with her company and colleagues in Minneapolis. And so, our, But our guest today is Rob Chestnut. Rob, welcome to Drive Through HR. Michael, thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, glad glad to have you here. I've, I've been intrigued by your background. Um, be, before we get into some of the some of the topics, though, so Rob Rob has most recently been with Airbnb as their chief ethics officer and has held a number of other interesting positions. But Rob, for the benefit of our listeners, um, why don't you go ahead and give introduce yourself and tell folks what what you've done and what you do? Sure. I you know I started my career as a federal prosecutor in Virginia. Uh, prosecuting drug dealers and bank robbers and did a number of espionage cases, uh, including uh, Aldrich James, probably one of the, the better-known uh, yep. CIA spy cases. Uh, I, I was lucky, though, you know, I ended up having a, a small little company in my jurisdiction in Northern Virginia that caught my eye called mm-hmm. America Online. And it got me interested <laughs> in the Internet. Sorry. So yeah. I, uh, I remember yeah, that. <laughs> in the old days. Right with the disc, I had the uh, I got one of the discs, put it in my computer, and plugged my phone into the back, and I was uh, on the internet in the early days, mm-hmm. and I uh, started using uh, a little company called eBay, and uh, I thought that their business was was really interesting, and sent them a, an email one night, uh, telling them what I, what a great company I thought they had, and ended up uh, interviewing for and getting a job uh, as one of <laughs> eBay's first 200 employees. That's so awesome. uh, I was uh, ran North America Legal and Trust and Safety for eBay. I uh, was the general counsel of a company called Chegg. It took them public a few years back, and I was the general counsel of Airbnb as well as their chief ethics officer. Awesome. So Chegg, I did not know. So what 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 is their uh, business? So Chegg is in the online education space. So they were famous for inventing the concept of renting textbooks. So we had a big warehouse with a couple of million textbooks in it that students could save a lot of money by, you know, renting a textbook instead of buying it. Uh, So, but we knew even, you know, back back when in the early days that that was a model that wouldn't last forever because the world was going digital. So Chegg, mm-hmm. you know, while we were there, we gradually sort of evolved to online homework help in addition to online textbooks and still running textbooks. Company's yeah. an $8 billion public company today. That's crazy. Um, and, yeah, I remember when I was in college in the mid and late 70s, you know, you had to go buy the books at one store or, you know, typically only one store in Ann Arbor, Michigan. There might have been two. Um, and you, you basically carted them off and read, read some of them and then took them back and got about, I don't know, 10 cents on the dollar or something for to resell them. But anyway, other, right. yeah, yeah. I, I haven't That's been to college. It was a great business model. Yeah, they, yeah they, it's interesting. I remember when I was there, one of the leading textbooks was Campbell's Biology. cost you about 150 bucks if you bought it brand new. But I remember on Chegg, we, we were renting it for about 25 to $30 a semester. Wow. Uh, so the savings for students is pretty tremendous, and that's why I think the company's been so successful. You know, 
really well-run company. Nice. Um, so you, so I, I noted in your background, um, we'll, we'll talk about your book and some other things uh, and, and some ethics in the workplace, but I thought your background, which you just described of being a prosecutor and, you know, and sort of, and, you know, doing work with the government and that kind of stuff, and then switching over into the private sector. Uh, how, I mean, I don't know how common that is. I know, I, I mean, I know a lot of H we're primarily catering to a human resources audience. I don't know. I guess I didn't mention that in the, in the pre-show. Um, you know, we know, I know plenty of attorneys that were employment law attorneys that go in house and become a you know general counsel or HR legal director or something like that. But I I've not really talked to somebody that made sort of the same move that you have. So what kind of what kind of stuff did you encounter in making that transition and how did it work for you? Well, it was a hard transition because you know I, I wanted I wanted to be more proactive and positive with what I was doing with my life. You know, being a prosecutor mm-hmm. is great work. It's important work. But it could be pretty negative and a downer. I wanted, I was like business, wanted to do something that sort of helped people in a more mm-hmm. positive way. Uh, but the problem was I'd go talk to companies and they would look at my resume and say, wow, you know, you've got a great resume as a prosecutor, but we don't prosecute people. So I had to come up with a way to help them understand that my background was, was useful. So with eBay, it was pretty obvious to me when I was an eBay user that as great as the platform was, uh, they had issues with fraud. They had a lot of questions around what was legal to sell online, you know, ticket scalping, uh, alcohol, tobacco, uh, you know, items that might be legal in one state or one country but not in another. Uh, also, a lot of regulatory issues. So I was able to sort of pitch that background to eBay in order to, to make the transition. And by, by the way, it was something that, uh, it worked out well, and in fact, it worked out so well, the company um, had me go out and hire other prosecutors. So the mm. the first prosecutor I hired ended up going on to be the uh, spent a number of years at eBay and became the general counsel at Wikipedia. The next one turned out to be a guy by the name of Kent Walker, who is now the general counsel at Google. And a third one ended up running security for both Facebook and Uber. So uh, even though it's not common, uh, prosecutors uh, have actually ended up doing quite well in the tech sector because of the nature of the work. Sure. Did you uh, did you get involved? You know, like you talked about wh- what they should sell and that kind of stuff. So that's one thing, kind of like your product line and all of that. But eBay was also a technology company, right? I mean, they had, they had proprietary software and that kind of stuff. Did you get involved in that end of the business as well, or is that someone else? Well, you know what. Uh, Two months after I uh, quit my secure government job and went out to work at eBay, uh, the website went down for 23 hours. <laughs> so uh, it, purely coincidence, it was not my doing. Uh, it was simply that the, it, it was a, quite a technological marvel uh, mm-hmm. to have literally several million new items listed every day and running simultaneous auctions in multiple languages globally. Uh, was quite a challenge from a technology perspective, uh, mm-hmm. and one that uh, was was something that we had to bring in a guy by the name of Maynard Webb, who was really one of the leading technology minds in the country, to help eBay solve. Uh, well beyond my technological abilities, I you know I, my first week at, at eBay, Meg Whitman came in and said, "Rob, you're in charge of figuring out what we can sell and what we can't sell. Uh, you got to you know, make sure you keep us all out of trouble." And that was my early focus at the company. So, 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 what what was what was like unsellable? 
Can you get? Can you give us a well, clean example? Well, the first one was guns. <laughs> well, the first thing yeah. you're learning about were guns, right? And, okay. and there were some obvious ones that I had to deal with right away. But I'll give you an interesting one. Uh, I, I got an email my first month from a user who said, "You all are all going to jail. You're selling jarts." And I thought <laughs> to myself, well, "Jarts? What a j- go online!" And it turns out jarts jarts are these things that are also known as lawn darts. You know, yep. Back, I think, in the 60s, some toy manufacturer got the great idea that it would be fun to create these steel-tipped darts with big plastic mm-hmm. fins. And kids could throw them across the grass into, the, into these like hula hoop-type things right. uh, to <laughs> score points, and it would be a fun game. Of course, the problem is with kids, they weren't throwing the darts just into the hoops. They were throwing them into each other. And kids were right. showing up in emergency rooms with these darts in each other, and it was uh, the product was banned by the Consumer Product Safety Commission. So I thought, well, wow, this isn't good. So uh, I figured, I wondered, do we really have somebody selling these things? So I go online to the site. It turned out we had 15 sets of them because people were cleaning out their garages, and they didn't know or mm-hmm. care what, you know, what had been formally banned. And so in that moment, I realized we had a problem, and it wasn't just jarts. Every item that had ever been banned as unsafe, you know, uh, hmm. car seats, power tools, and the like, these things were ending up on eBay. And so one of my early challenges was how in the world are we going to figure out what items uh, were unsafe for uh, consumers, and how were we going to find them? Uh, and so I tell the story in, in my book uh, that – uh, I picked up the phone and called the uh, general counsel of the Consumer Product Safety Commission and uh, said, I'd like to come out and meet you. Uh, and he agreed, and I flew to Washington, D.C., and sat down in the room with him and showed him the jars and said, look, eBay is a good company. We want mm-hmm. to do the right thing. You know, We don't want our customers to end up getting hurt in the hospitals, but we need your help because we don't know what's been recalled. And we formed a partnership uh, and worked together and to this day, eBay and the Consumer Product Safety Commission still work together to find items that might be unsafe to consumers and to get them off the website. That's it. Because I've never sold anything on eBay. I, back in the day, I participated in some uh, you know, auctions where you had to sit for the last 15 minutes outbidding that one persistent and annoying person who was trying to get the same thing we're going to get. I don't or I guess I don't know how the process worked to put something up for sale. How, like if I wanted to just, to just sell my own charts, how, how did that get back, you know, to you and your staff or whatever? Um, just out of curiosity, how did, how did you audit that? Well, early on, you know, the, we, we had pretty primitive tools. We were actually using the same tools that users would use. We would, uh, we, I had a team of people. They would go to the site, type in the word charts, and look for it like anybody else, and then pull it down quickly. But mm-hmm. we uh, pretty quickly were able to develop some fairly sophisticated tools that would analyze, uh, gracious, probably over 100 features of mm-hmm. a, a, a registration and a listing and compare it to models that we built that looked for characteristics that we recognized were uh, that created issues. And if it hit one of the models, it, the, the item listing would be delayed, and someone would take a look at it and pull it down. So mm-hmm. it was, um, we were actually the first trust and safety uh, group ever built in the Internet. And it's, it's now something that YouTube and Google and Facebook and everyone 
are struggling with in trying mm-hmm. to ferret out hate speech and the like. And it's interesting that all of those companies ended up hiring eBay people. All of the folks at eBay who originally struggled with it are now spread out working at YouTube, Facebook, and Google and the like, trying to, uh, to figure out the next phase of how to address these problems. Yeah, I mean, like I, I was, I was going to say that that's very similar to what Facebook is really getting. There's a boycott right now by a number of uh, companies, you know, their customers, I guess, you know, because they, they're not taking, the, I guess, what these employers or companies view as the, you know, strong, stringent enough action to kind of solve that stuff around our election and everything. Yeah, the, the guy that's in charge of that for Facebook is a guy by the name of Jeff King, who uh, was our uh, head of product on my trust and safety team back at eBay. So he has some tremendous experience with dealing with hate items that we uh, ultimately banned on eBay, like Nazi memorabilia uh, and memorabilia that was created by a famous, for example, murderers that eBay made a decision early on to ban. So these are, these are things that the Internet's been struggling with for a while, and it all started back in the early days at eBay. I'm sorry, Michael, I didn't hear you. You must have cut out. Hey, Rob. Rob. Can you hear me now? I'm unmuted, yeah. I'm sorry. That, that was, I hear you. That was on my end. My, I had a direct connection, and it fell apart. So sorry about that. I no wasn't problem. sure how no to problem. Yeah, so... So anyway, you were you were mentioning the guy at Facebook, Jim something, I think, was the last thing I heard. Yeah, uh, so Jeff, you want Jeff King. Jeff and I actually were on the phone yesterday talking about this. He and I worked together at eBay dealing with Nazi memorabilia and uh, items for sale, for example, by famous prisoners and murderers. Uh, hate speech even back in those days. And so it's, it's something he's still working on. Yeah, I mean, that, I, I can only imagine that it's a nightmare, like, 24-7. Um, anyway, that doesn't, that's very interesting, but it doesn't have much to do with HR. So we'll go back to a somewhat more <laughs> related topic. Um, so, so, you know, your, your, your book is, is about ethics, and we'll get into that in just a bit, but um, the title and everything. But um, you made that switch. I can see prosecutor, you know, having a responsibility, uh, member of the court, and all that kind of stuff. How did you wind up in – ethics and yeah. you know i guess well you've done it at three different companies so, so let's talk about that and then we'll jump into airbnb and then your book okay yeah that sounds great you know what it, i actually i think this whole area has a lot more to do with hr than might initially meet the eye you know we we are living in an age now where employees want to work at a company that reflects right. their own personal values Right, it's uh, your the company you work for becomes part of your personal brand. It's your logo right. on LinkedIn. You're putting, you know, eight, ten, twelve plus hours a day. You want to make a difference in the world. And if in the old days, you know, Michael, you might go to work for a company and spend thirty years there and get a gold watch. Now employees are a lot more mobile. 
And if something's going on at their company that they don't like, they are tweeting about it. They're on Slack talking to other employees about it. They're blogging about it. They're on Vine. They're speaking up. And if they don't like something, they will walk out. Uh, You know, Susan Fowler's blog post, for example, about what was going on at Uber changed the course of that company. So if a company is is not stepping up with integrity, employees are often playing a leading role in pushing companies to uh, straighten up ethically. Correct. And I, may, I don't know if I misstated. I just want to make sure. I was saying that the technology stuff fascinating to me, but really wanted to get to ethics, which was our topic. And technology does have something to do with the HR, but the ethics point is much more on point. And, and all, all of what you said just now, Rob is so true, and we're seeing it play out. Um, you know, we've, we've had the Me Too um, sort of movement. We have a Black Lives Matter movement going on now. Uh, em- employers are very hamstrung on trying to figure out what the right way to to deal with these sudden hotspot um, kind of movements are, and they're not well prepared. And you mentioned the Uber, and there have been protests at Google, Wayfair, many other companies related to the same thing, like the product choices, and it's it vexes employers a, a lot. To, to kind of deal with those issues that employers employees didn't really call you out for in the past but have the ability to do today. Um, so, like, ethically, well, first of all, let's say, let's just uh, define ethics, I guess, from the way you do it, you describe it in your book. And then let's talk a little bit about Airbnb because there's a whole another interesting thread I want to chase there, and then we'll go to your book. So. Yeah, well, it- Ethics and integrity, I think, are really about doing the right thing, figuring out mm-hmm. with intentionality what is the right thing in the context of your your life or your business. And then once you've defined what the right thing is, uh, actually acting in accordance with it, even when no one's watching. You know, the, the problem today, Michael, is that somebody's always watching. It seems these days, right? And uh, it, the, the I think the prevalence of video on your cell phone combined with the internet means that the world is constantly watching what's going on. So if you mm-hmm. are not doing a good job of defining your values, if you're not acting in accordance with those values, uh, the world will quickly expose you. Agreed. Um... It, you know, it, it, happen, it happens all the time, and some of these things turn into name and shame campaigns. And um, but let, hypothetically, Rob, if you if you're you know if you think you're a good employer and you're, I guess you're to your point, your brand kind of lines up with that, and then suddenly you know something comes up that, like 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 what we're seeing today, um, what is not you know. What if you don't necessarily feel like you want to embrace an issue, even though you may have a group calling out to you, but you, the company rather is con- convinced that what they're doing is um, normative for their values? How do, how do you yeah. internally reconcile that, you know, sort of the, the disconnect that might occur there? Yeah, it's hard. You know what? I think, first of all, in the past, companies have shied away from controversial topics. Uh, They want to focus on making money, right, hitting a quarterly number. The problem is we're in an age of 
not only are employees uh, deeply concerned about the values of a company, but consumers are as well. We're in an age of conscious consumerism. Consumers want to spend their money with brands that reflect their own personal values. So you mm-hmm. don't have the luxury of remaining silent anymore on controversial issues of the day. Uh, we've seen that with Black Lives Matter, for example. Um, and, and this can be very challenging for some companies to navigate. There was one recent example I've been reading about with a company called Goya Foods. It's a well-known Hispanic mm-hmm. brand. That's, you know, They're based uh, here in Florida uh, where I live, yeah. Yeah. And well, you know, loved by customers and by the Hispanic community uh, for decades. Uh, but their CEO recently got in trouble because their CEO showed up at the White House for a Rose Garden ceremony dealing with uh, the Hispanic uh, business community. And at that Rose Garden ceremony, the CEO praised President Trump for being a great leader. Mm-hmm. Now, this caused quite a bit of consternation in the Latino community and among Goya customers who don't necessarily believe that President Trump has been great for the Latino community. Uh, the, you know, the president mm-hmm. has been quoted as you know, uh, making a number of controversial statements about, the Mex- about Mexicans and taking positions mm-hmm. on immigration contrary to those in the Latino community. So now the CEO of Goya uh, is faced with a tremendous boycott uh, where people are speaking out and urging others to boycott Goya Foods, and the boycott is having a substantial impact. Uh, and in, instead of recognizing that the, that his comments may have been hurtful to the Latino community, the CEO went on Fox News and doubled down and claimed that uh, the boycott was somehow suppressing his right to free speech. Well, I, th- I think in reality, the CEO had his uh, uh, opportunity to speak freely by going to the White House, and now consumers are exercising their right to free speech. Because I, I think a boycott is, in and of itself, speech. So I don't. I, I think Goya has not navigated this particular situation very well because they they didn't think carefully about who are their stakeholders and how can their actions be perceived by their key stakeholders? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not that, I mean, I, I know Goya products because I see them in the grocery store shelves, not familiar whether they're publicly held or privately held or family owned. And a lot of times that, that CEO spot, depending on what the, what the company looks like structurally has a big impact on these kind of things. Um, but I'm not familiar with how that looks. Yeah. I've seen that in the news here several times and, it, it, you know, and then there are other people who are going in stores and buying extra Goyas. You know, they call it a boycott. That's right. To show their support. That's so there's, right. there's two That's sides right. to these publicly viewed coins, I guess. And I guess a company that, like, I, I guess the example I was giving is if you're a company that feels comfortable with where you are, um, you, you can still get taken to task. But it's hard to, you're, it's hard to come out the other end without having a few, a few uh, scratches or whatever analogy I'm looking for there. Um and, and I yeah, think leadership's tough in that. this age, no question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I guess where I was going, uh, so thanks for that. Um, right now, uh, the pandemic, we've talked about this with other guests, but it's just like COVID-19, the economy melting down, 
now racial tension. You know, I called it a, on, a, on a show with another guest last week. To me, it's like a triple witching hour in the stock market, you know, when you have the jobs report and the earnings report and all of that. And, it, and nobody, nobody has the magic uh, answer to how you, how you deal with this stuff. But from an, from an ethical point of view, um, I guess one of, your, one of your other former employers, Airbnb, probably has had a, a fair amount of, like, because there were probably people who booked rooms for vacations and all that kind of stuff. And I, I don't know, I guess I'm curious how Airbnb, you know, may have responded to that, if you can talk about it at all, or if not, you know, give us an sure. example of how a company like Airbnb might think about responding in the era of COVID-19. Yeah, it was a real challenge for Airbnb because, you know, as you know, the, the pandemic has had a catastrophic effect on the travel industry. Uh, and one of the early challenges they faced was the fact that uh, a number of reservations on Airbnb have very uh, have restrictive uh, cancellation policies. You know, each host right. has their own policy. And what happened is that people made reservations to travel, and then the pandemic hit. And they were, were stuck with uh, a reservation that they couldn't cancel. What do you do in a situation mm-hmm. like this, right? So, you know, if you force people to keep the reservation, you're actually encouraging travel that may be illegal or at best unwise and could spread the virus. Uh, it could right. also, you know, put the guest at risk. By, by going forward with it, if you, however, or, or if they if they then decide not to travel, they lose their money. On the other hand, the hosts are counting on this money. This was booked money that they were mm-hmm. relying on. Uh, so what do you do? And I think you know, Airbnb uh, allowed cancellation of a number of these reservations just because it was the right thing to do for the guests and for public safety. But then Airbnb created a $250 million host fund where Airbnb Uh then reimbursed hosts for 25% of the value of a canceled reservation under these circumstances, which, you know, certainly wasn't uh, a full compensation, but it was something and showed really that Airbnb was trying to, do things, uh, do the right thing by all of its stakeholders. But it certainly presented a very challenging set of circumstances. No doubt. Um, did the did the fact that, you know, most of the, I guess, most of the Airbnb hosts were essentially the same thing as gig economy workers are for, for Uber in terms of drivers, in, in that they're not employed by Airbnb, but they use Airbnb as a a business tool to get bookings and that kind of stuff. Did that did that have any impact on, on how that worked, or is it was it pretty much straightforward as you just described? Well, it's a little different because you know at Uber, of course, what those those people are doing is they're using not just their own uh, property, a car, but they're also mm-hmm. primarily using their own time. So at Airbnb, an Airbnb host typically doesn't, isn't doing actual work uh, right. most of the time, right? They'll, they may often greet someone and let them in. But Airbnb really is more about renting a space as, it, as opposed to Uber, where you're actually, a, a lot of what you're paying for is someone's time and energy to drive you. Mm-hmm. So certainly different, a difference in circumstances legally. Got it. Um, Kind of going back to COVID, um, just in in 
the larger sense, all it, all employers are faced with a bunch of different decisions right now, as are the, our government, state, local, and federal, you know, about what do we do to go back or get back or whatever. And again, there's this whole, I mean, there's a, you know, open the schools, and then there's a bunch of people that say, yeah, open the schools, but our kids need to get back in school. And there's another group that says, no, no, it's too dangerous. How do, how do employers walk that fine line from an ethical perspective? Well, you've got to start by, I think you could put your health and safety of your employees first and, your, you know, your stakeholders. It starts there. Now, that's a challenge. You know, some businesses, uh, people have been on the front lines the entire time, right? Drug stores, right. grocery stores, hospitals and the like. Uh, it's critical that employers put the health and safety of those frontline workers right at the top. And, you know, I think some industries have done this better than others. Uh, but you, you know, you as a leader, you've got to you, you can't put your workers in a position that you wouldn't feel comfortable yourself being in. So you know, I think mm-hmm. what leaders need to do in these circumstances is uh, really listen to their people and actually get out on the front lines themselves, get an understanding of what it must be like out there, and uh, you know, do do everything you can to prioritize the health and safety of your employees. If you don't, trust will be irrevocably uh, broken with your employees uh, and also with your customers. Uh, so putting health and safety first, I think, is number one. Uh, number two, you've got to be willing to sacrifice as a leader. You know, there's a, Simon Sinek wrote a great book, uh, uh, you know, Leaders Eat Last, you know, referring back to the mm-hmm. military tradition of, of leaders lo- allowing their troops to go ahead of them to eat first in line. Um, when it comes to a crisis, leaders have to be the ones to sacrifice first. So if, for example, your business is uh, being severely impacted, uh, you've got to be the first one to take a pay cut. And you see a lot of leaders that, that I admire, you know, Adam Silver, commissioner at the NBA, uh, leadership mm-hmm. at Airbnb and another of companies. If your company's suffering, you know, you're certainly the one that's making a lot of money when things go well. You've got to be the one to step up first, raise your hand, and say, I'm going to take a significant pay cut. Um, because you can't ask anyone else in your company to sacrifice uh, if you're not willing to sacrifice. You know, I, I saw one uh, rental car company where the executives all bonuses, I think something like $80 million in bonuses were paid out uh, yep. to, to a major rental car company at the same time that they were laying off thousands of workers. Uh, I, I think that sort of thing creates uh, a terrible dy- dynamic in the workplace. You've got to be the first to, to raise your hand and sacrifice in these circumstances. Yeah, no, I, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I was talking about that company on a Facebook thread the other day, and it was, you know, the, the point was they laid off, you know, hundreds of thousands or whatever it was, but their, uh, you know, their, their management got paid. And I said, this is terrible optics. And somebody pointed out to me that, well, it's very important in, in a company in the situation that they're in. First of all, it's brilliant that they went bankrupt because it relieved them from a lot of pressure on releases, cause, you know, problems caused by the pandemic. I was like, that's not great. I mean, it, they're trying to keep the company open, I guess, but it really looks bad when they take their bonuses first. And this guy then went on to kind of double down on, on saying it was okay. 
that the real problem was the fact that they, they reneged on a group of uh, consultants that had contracts with them. And I'm like, you know what, I'm out of this conversation because I'm pretty sure there's no way I'm going to agree. <laughs> but um, it, it's just, it, anyway, it's crazy. So let's talk about your book. This, this show is going by much faster than usual, uh, Rob. Your book is entitled in, Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Re- Revolution. And, and I believe that comes out, you said, in a couple of weeks, right? Comes out July twenty uh, July twenty eighth, two weeks. Yeah, so so think, thinking about it from the from our audience perspective, you know, HR, talk a little bit about the themes of the book and how that might re- relate to the HR people. Well, critical thing is that integrity is a powerful double edged sword in today's business environment. Uh, there's, I think, really, I call it an integrity revolution. Uh, it matter, mm-hmm. Integrity matters now to employees and consumers and communities more than ever. It can take mm-hmm. your business down if you don't focus on it and think about it. On the other hand, with some energy, integrity can be a superpower that energizes your employee base and gets consumers excited about your product. The question is, how do you do it? And the, the book really traces – uh, you know, work that we've done at Airbnb, and also a number of conversations I've had with some top leaders around the country uh, and some behavioral mm-hmm. scientists about how you can drive a culture of integrity uh, at your company. And, you know, too often uh, integrity is something that is ignored. Uh, you know, there's a code of ethics, but the code of ethics is something that your law firm creates. Or worse, you, you go online and copy it from another company and put your logo on top. And then you email it out to everyone in your company and say, check a box saying you've read it. And then it gets buried in the corporate intranet. Uh, you know, you've got the laminated compliance posters on your break room wall. Uh, you make right. people watch a, a video by a third party about sexual harassment, uh, and it just clicks through. You know, all of these things are compliance. They may be legally required, but they are not sending a powerful message to your employee base that integrity really matters. What you need to do is you need to engage in an intentional effort from the leadership level to talk about integrity and why it matters and what it means at your company. And the book is really traces in a very practical way things that you can do to, to get people in your company energized about integrity, wanting to do the right thing, and how that's ultimately doesn't cost money, but it's actually going to be good for your business. I, uh, you know, there are company culture kind of statements all, that are all, all over the place, right? Um, in, in, at Airbnb, you had the title of chief ethics officer, I believe is what it was. So you were a CEO of a different color or stripe, if you will. Do companies need an ethics officer? And, and if so, where, where should it reside? Um, they don't need one. You, you can be an ethical company without a chief ethics officer. And just because you've got a chief ethics officer doesn't mean you're an ethical company. Uh, I, I don't mm-hmm. think it's something that one person can own. At Airbnb, I used to say that you know, my goal was to have 5,000 chief ethics officers. You know, you want the sense that everyone in the company feels like they are aligned and invested in doing the right thing. That's when you're going to be successful as a company. But you won't be successful in driving that culture unless the leadership of the company 
buys into the importance of integrity. So if your leader, if your CEO has integrity, walks the walk, talks the talk, then all things are possible. If the leadership of a company does not have integrity and doesn't care about it, then there's nothing you can do. It won't do you any good to set up a program because everyone will see that it's hypocritical. I think a chief ethics officer can help be a leader at the top of the company, be a spokesperson Mm -hmm. from the leadership uh, committee, uh, and can help constantly drive the conversation inside of a company. So it can be an important position. But if the leadership of your company uh, is engaged and and talks about it, um, you can do it without a chief ethics officer. I just love the idea that everyone needs to own integrity in a company, and setting that tone from the top is what matters. Yeah, yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. Um, you know, and, and you know the cultural values and all that kind of stuff. Um, how do you? Um, well, in your role as chief ethics officer, I guess. Let me frame the question this way: How how did you assess and audit the, the organization um, to make sure that you had five thousand ethical? officers or, you know, chief ethics officers out there, what kind of stuff did you do in the background to kind of make sure you're walking the walk or talking the talk? Well, great point because, you know, as we all know, you've got to have metrics in business. You know, what you measure is what you focus on. So there Mm -hmm. were a number of things we actually looked at, you know, and it started at orientation. You know, we did an orientation class for all new employees. We actually did about 25 of them their first week, and one of them Mm -hmm. is around ethics. And we, uh, we do blind surveys at the end. And we asked people, uh, have you read the Code of Ethics? And did the, what did the class that you just took, how did that impact your view of the company? And do you believe, based on that first week, that Airbnb operates with integrity? We then go around to the company and do ethics talks and regularly gather survey information from employees about how they feel the company operates and whether it operates with integrity or not. Uh, We do our own integrity videos, and they're short, funny, three-minute videos uh, every month Mm -hmm. about a different aspect of integrity. But we can actually tell how many people watch the videos, so we can test sort of the engagement. It would not be unusual at Airbnb to have 2,000 people in a given month, employees, voluntarily watch an ethics video, which is pretty incredible for a level of engagement around something like integrity. We also Mm -hmm. have ethics ambassadors, and these are ordinary employees who have day jobs as engineers and customer support, finance, and the like. But they have a side job of being a point person on their team to answer questions about ethical issues that come up. And we, they actually report back on what types of questions they get. So we can track how many questions we're getting from different parts of the company and find out what people are interested in and what sort of topics come up. So there are lots mm-hmm. of things you can do to sort of measure the level of engagement in the company and measure how employees feel about how you're doing. And it's really important to do. Yeah, um, I think in your book you mentioned like a top ten ethical traps. I don't expect you to run down the whole list, but can you give a couple of examples of what people would find from that list in your book? Sure. Well, one is romantic relationships. Right? Uh, we see over and over again how leadership in, comp- in a company gets tripped up 
with a sexual harassment lawsuit that starts with mm-hmm. a romantic relationship that may or may not have some level of consent that at some point was involved. Um, another is alcohol. You know, we, we see a number of ethical issues arise at companies that may arise initially because someone uh, is getting drunk at an office holiday party or trash mm-hmm. an office lunch or you know, uh, you know, in, in office travel or in conferences, heavy alcohol involved. So uh, that, th- those are two, for example, uh, ethical traps that we see when we, when we look around companies. And the problem is most companies don't, have, don't talk about that. What are the rules? Well, how, how do you expect people to act? So, for example, in romantic relationships, uh, I went into the executive team one day and said, look, you know, as, as executives in the company, it's hard for us to have a consensual relationship because if we propose something uh, to an employee that's a lower level, uh, they might feel compelled to do, go along with it just because they're worried about their career. And if, if mm-hmm. and when things fall apart, it can be really embarrassing. So I proposed to the executives, why don't we just agree that if we're on the executive team in the company, you know, the top dozen people, we will not have any romantic relationship of any kind with any employee or vendor, even a consensual one. And, you know, we had a conversation around the room about it and agreed that that was the right thing for the company. Um, and we, uh, we put that rule out among all employees so that if someone on the executive team violates that rule, then the person that's going to get punished is the member of the executive team that broke their commitment to the others on the team. Uh, we also created a rule inside of Airbnb, an ask-out-once rule, that um, you may not ask anyone out if you are anywhere in the chain, the management chain. You mm-hmm. can ask someone out if you're not in the chain, but you can only ask someone out once. If they say no, then you have to drop it. Even if they say, oh, well, I'm, uh, I've got plans this weekend, I'm sorry, maybe some other time, that's a no. So what we are trying to avoid is an environment where people are coming to work feeling like they're going to be pressured into romantic engagements with others in the company, particularly managers and the like. So we just have a conversation with it about employees and put it in our code. And that has a big impact in reducing the kind of problems I think that other companies have. Yeah, and it, it has the back end advantage of if somebody violates it, it's a lot easier to say you knew the rules than if not there was nothing to except the policy. Um, we have less than two minutes. I had a couple other questions, but I don't think we're going to be able to get to them. So very quickly, one final thought, and then I'll ask you to share where people can find your book and you if they want to reach out. Yeah. Um, integrity is contagious. What do I mean by that? I mean that people will act in ways that make them feel good about themselves. If they're in an, in an environment that talks about the importance of integrity and you know, where they see leaders acting with integrity, uh, that actually has a big impact on the way that they'll act. It pushes them to raise their game a little bit and, because they don't want to be out of step with their peers. On the other hand, if they see leaders doing things that they know are unethical, it actually gives them a rationalization and a justification for doing similar things and companies are going to have a problem. So if you're an HR leader, the real key, I think, to operating a company that has a a culture of integrity is create an environment where people talk about it, particularly leaders, because the contagion effect can be quite powerful both ways. 
Understood. In uh, 30 seconds, where can people find you on the Internet, Twitter, anything like that? Well, I'm on LinkedIn almost every day with a different post about integrity in business. So people feel free to reach out, follow me, or connect with me on LinkedIn. I've got a website, www.intentionalintegrity.com, and the book is available widely uh, starting on July 28th. You can pre-order it now through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any – I love local bookstores. Uh, Go there as well to get the book. Thanks. Fantastic. We have five seconds. Thanks for being our guest today. I'm going to go ahead and end the show.